Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Ajua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to address you, our regular listeners. We know you have enjoyed our podcasts, as evidenced by the more than 200,000 downloads to date. Thanks to you all. We'd like to know what value you may have found in the podcast. We'd like to hear from all of you, practitioners, researchers, students, but especially our listeners who are social work educators. How are you using the podcast in your classrooms? Just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the Contact Us tab. Again, thanks for listening and we look forward to hearing from you. Today's podcast features a conversation with Dr. Eugene Walls. Dr. Walls is an associate professor at the Graduate School of Social Work, University of Denver. His academic and research interests include gender, sexuality, homelessness, and social movements and social stratification. Dr. Walls is a community practice specialist with experience at the United Cerebral Palsy Association, Kids Peace National Centers for Kids in Crisis, and the Center for Homelessness in South Bend, Indiana. Dr. Walls has written extensively about sexual minority youth. Here, Dr. Walls discusses his research on school engagement among sexual minority students, the contributing roles of school climate, adult allies, and gay-straight alliances in predicting academic outcomes. Dr. Diane Elzey, Associate Professor and Director of the MSW Program at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, spoke with Dr. Walls by telephone. I am Diane Elsie, Associate Professor and Director of the MSW Program at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. I will be talking today with Dr. N. Eugene Walls, Associate Professor at the Graduate School of Social Work at the University of Denver. We will be talking about his research on how the existence of gay-straight alliances may impact the lives of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender youth and young adults. Dr. Walls, thank you so much for your willingness to be interviewed. I hear that you're having snow in Denver as we speak. Oh, we definitely are. It's uh, not unusual for us this time of the year. Well, I want to take this opportunity to tell all of our listeners that on this day, December 22nd, we have no snow in <laughs> Buffalo, New York. I hear you. <laughs> now, you've been conducting research on how gay-straight alliances may impact the lives of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender youth and young adults. How did you become interested in conducting research with LGBT youth, and then more specifically, on how their well-being and educational achievement may be associated with the presence of gay-straight alliances? My larger research agenda does focus on risk and resilience in the lives of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer youth. And I'm going to be using LGBTQ and queer probably synonymously throughout the interview so folks know. And when I arrived at the University of Denver back in 2005 as a new assistant professor, I was lucky enough to be connected with the 
program here in Denver. It's called Rainbow Alley. And as we began to look at some data they had collected, it was really interesting to see these different factors emerging. And some of the kind of lived experiences that the youth were talking about were on the risk factor side of the equation. So those were things like bullying, familial abuse, non-suicidal self-injury. And then some of the experiences were on the resilient side of the equation, and those were student school engagement and gay-straight alliances, for example. So that's really how my kind of larger research agenda that was focused on queer youth really kind of zeroed in on gay-straight alliances. And when back in 2005, when I began to look at the scholarship on GSAs, I was dismayed to find that very little work had been done at that point, not only in the field of social work, but it also didn't exist in the larger body of research, including the fields of education, psychology, sociology. At that point, GLSEN was, uh, had started doing its annual National School Climate Survey, and maybe I should say GLSEN is the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network, for folks who don't know that acronym. And their National School Climate Survey had been very useful. It was very useful and is still very useful. And then sociologist Melinda Maselli out of the University of Hartford had turned the research that she had completed for her dissertation into a book on GSA that also came out in 2005. It was Outstanding Together, I believe was the name of it. And so that was also very good. But other than that, there was really only a smattering of articles in the scholarship, and many of those were more editorial or think pieces, and some of those were about the resistance that GSAs were facing in certain school districts. So um, at that point, on the one hand, This lack of research was not surprising, given that GSAs were still a fairly recent and emerging social phenomenon. And I think that GLSEN identifies the first official GSA as starting back in about 1988. So still fairly recent phenomenon. But on the other hand, GSAs were proliferating at a very rapid rate. I think the last time I looked at the GLSEN website, it indicated there were about 4,000 GSAs registered with them in the U.S. and a few other countries. And, of course, those are only the chapters or the clubs that are officially registered or, and that identify with the label Gay Straight Alliance. So, so it was clear at that point that GSAs were an area of research where a lot needed to be done. I think the other thing about GSAs that were especially attractive for me is my interest in allyship how we as social workers engage in behavior that supports the advancement of cultural and identity groups to which we don't belong. And it seems to me that GSAs have been a particularly successful framework for involving heterosexually identified allies in the struggle for justice for LGBTQ people. And it's not to say that allies as a concept is new. It had definitely been around and incorporated into other social movements. There have always been white anti-racist allies in the civil rights movement, male feminist involved in equality for women. But the GSA framework gave this ally work a particular structure that I think has been really useful and that people can actually replicate. I think that's been kind of one of the really nice qualities of GSAs and has really led to their proliferation. So I want to continue and ask you about the various studies that you've conducted with young people. But first, could you say something about Rainbow Alley? how you established such a close collaboration with them and the kinds of services they provide. Sure, sure. So Rainbow Alley, like I said, is the LGBTQ youth program here in Denver, and it's a program of the Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender Community Center of Colorado. 
And when I arrived in 2005, Catherine Alter, who was then the dean of the Graduate School of Social Work here at the University of Denver, connected me with Hope Wisniewski, who was one of our former alums and who was, at that time, the Youth Services Program Director, I believe was her title. So she was over Rainbow Alley. And in our very first meeting, I mean, it was kind of like a dream come true for a brand new assistant professor who wasn't, who was brand new to Denver, had no contacts in the Denver community. As Hope and I were talking, she was, she said, wow, we've been collecting data for a few years and we just use these data for internal reports, writing grants, our annual report, those kinds of things. And she's like, would you like to take a look at it and see if there's anything interesting in it? And so... I was obviously very excited about that, that they were actually involved already in collecting data on an annual basis for program eval and program planning purposes, and that she was just so open and trusting with me with their data. So that was really an exciting opportunity. So that's how the, the collaboration actually started. And from there, it's just kind of blossomed and grown. It's just been a really wonderful partnership for me. In terms of what Rainbow Alley does, they're modeled on a youth-adult partnership approach. So the youth are involved in all of the programming decisions and, and the running of the programs. They offer numerous different programs, but like leadership, kind of healthy sexuality. They do a lot of support of the Gay Straight Alliances in particularly the Denver public schools, but are, have expanded out into the kind of suburban communities around Denver as well. They have a drop-in center that I think at this point is open five nights a week. They do queer prom. They also sponsor at Pride Fest here in Denver, which is like, I think, the third largest Pride in the U.S. I think we usually have around 350,000 people show up for Pride. They sponsor, it's called The Alley, and it's um, all of the youth services providers come together in one particular area that is specifically for queer youth. And uh, so they coordinate that. They do lots of like speakers bureaus and talks and trainings, and they just do so much. And uh, they're a really amazing organization. I think Denver as a community is very lucky to have such a vibrant, exciting program here. And then I'm, as a researcher, I'm very lucky to have such a, an amazing partner that is really dedicated to doing research. Yeah, that's great. So can you tell us about the various studies that you have conducted with young people around Gay-Straight Alliance? Sure. The first study that I did with Rainbow Alley, which was published in Social Work, was actually a study about suicidality. And we were doing this in 2005, 2006, really a couple years before this recent rash of kind of suicides or the public face of suicidality among queer youth and the bullying that's kind of captured the media's attention for the time being. So it was really on suicidality. And and I feel really so fortunate, again, here at the Graduate School of Social Work, uh, Stacy Friedenthal is uh, a colleague, and Stacy is probably one of the leading social work scholars who studies suicidality. And so obviously it was a really natural collaboration with her to kind of look at these data and take a look at, in terms of queer youth who were receiving social services, what were, what indicated higher risk factors, basically, for for suicidality. And so one of the things that we looked at was the presence or absence of a gay-straight alliance in the junior high, high school, or even college that the respondent was attending. And what we found in our models where we were controlling for the demographics, we found that, sure enough, youth who were in schools that had GSAs were at reduced risk for indicating that they had either considered or attempted suicide in the previous year, the previous 12 months. 
So it was this little one variable in our models that really kind of made us start saying, okay, well, this is really interesting. What else should we be looking at when we're thinking about gay-straight alliances? So that's kind of the first study and how that it kicked off the whole research agenda on GSAs. Now, of course, since then, a number of studies have really demonstrated that same, the presence of GSAs is associated with decreased suicidality. So they've been kind of replicated. So that was the very first study that we did with the young folks that had GSAs in it. And you did also a study that looked at school engagement and educational achievement. Could you talk about that? Right, yeah. And so that one, that was, again, I'm lucky. Cynthia Hazel is a professor in the Mortgage College of Education here at the University of Denver. And her whole area is student school engagement. And there has been virtually nothing done. And there's a few things that have been done. But, I mean, this is even, there's less done on student school engagement among queer youth than there is around gay-straight alliances. And so as she and I were beginning to talk, we were like, wow, we should actually start taking a look at student school engagement because it's really clear in the general literature or the literature on general populations that student school engagement is really important in educational outcomes and school achievement and lots of really positive outcomes for youth. And so so we took a look at student school engagement, and what we found was that Student school engagement, gay-straight alliances had an interaction effect with student school engagement in terms of predicting GPA. And so let me see if I can kind of break that down a little bit for folks who are not familiar with what an interaction effect is. So what we found first was that student school engagement was associated with increased GPA among queer youth. So the queer youth who were more engaged in school, they had a stronger sense of belonging and valuing of school in terms of their grades. Now, that's not surprising at all. But what we found was that in schools that had gay-straight alliances, that the slope of that effect was steeper. So it was stronger. So the impact of student school engagement was stronger in schools that had GSAs than in schools that didn't have GSAs which was really exciting because that started us thinking about how might GSAs actually kind of be a catalyst for other and really be supportive of other types of interventions in schools that promote more positive educational outcomes. So it might work by itself as a positive intervention, but it also might have boost the impact of other types of interventions. And so that was really exciting to find that. And that study, of course, was the lead author was Christy Silman, who is a PhD, brilliant doctoral student here at the Graduate School of Social Work, who's actually doing her dissertation on transgender issues. And so she's just fascinating and wonderful to work with and really did an amazing job as the lead author on this piece. And so we're really excited about it. Great. You also found that having an adult ally in school was associated with decreased truancy. That is fear-based, and I thought that was an interesting finding. Right. One of the things that has kind of been a question in the literature on gay-straight alliances is how might they be functioning? And we can think about kind of a traditional social work language, or, you know, are they functioning at a macro level or are they functioning at a micro level or, or both, right? So at a macro level, you know, our GSAs are the positive outcomes that we're starting to see emerge for queer youth that are around GSAs. Are they happening because of GSAs' impact on campus climate? Or are they happening through a process of kind of individual support? So the youth being involved actually in the gay-straight alliances. 
And so one of the things that we looked at, the first we looked at the school-related variables like fear-based truancy because it's pretty well documented that, that youth and young adults skip school when they're really afraid. And so we looked at a number of school-related outcomes to see if it was the presence of the Gay-Straight Alliance in the school or the membership of the youth in the Gay-Straight Alliance that seemed to have a bigger impact. And what we found when we were looking at educational outcomes was that it seemed to be more on the campus climate level, that we were seeing these positive educational outcomes that were associated with the presence of a GSA in a school that were not associated necessarily with membership in the GSA. So in that study, we compared schools with and without GSAs, and then in schools with GSA, we compared youth who were members versus youth who were not members. And almost all of the educational outcomes were associated with presence, not with membership. So we thought that that was really interesting. And I think a recent study just came out last month out of the Family Acceptance Project, Caitlin Ryan's work, that actually replicated many of our findings, and they kind of concluded as well, wow, it seems like in terms of a lot of these positive impacts, it's happening at the campus climate level, not necessarily at the whether or not the youth is a member. Which is not surprising, particularly if we go back to Melinda Maselli's work, where she found that gay straight alliances are mostly heterosexually identified students. Right, exactly. So so queer kids, even though they're there, they might steer very clear of the gay straight alliance for safety reasons, for lots of different reasons. So, I want to ask you about what you found around victimization of queer youth in schools. We know that multiple studies over many years have consistently shown that queer youth experience a lot of victimization in their schools. And you had an interesting finding in your study. You found that young people attending schools with GSAs did not report lower rates of victimization, yet they reported that they felt safer in schools compared to youth that attended schools without a GSA. I wonder if this is because the measure of victimization did not assess frequency or severity of victimization, but only asked youth if they had experienced any harassment in the last 12 months. Or it could mean that there really is no difference in rates of victimization. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that finding that you have. Yeah, I think that in terms of this kind of body of work that we've done, I think this, for me, this is one of the most interesting and intriguing questions that you're bringing up. So just to kind of reiterate what you were saying, because I think it's a really important, it's really easy to miss, is that queer kids say we feel safer in schools where there are GSAs but when we looked at rates of victimization and bullying, they're being bullied just as much, regardless of whether there's a GSA in that school or not. And so it seems odd that they would feel safer when they're being bullied just as much, or at least that's what the findings seem to suggest. So we have two kind of ideas, and one about what might be going on, and one is completely exactly what you're talking about. So what we have, how we have measured victimization in our studies thus far has been this kind of blunt measure kind of a dichotomous yes-no, have they been bullied or not? And that's actually in line with a lot of the bullying literature where we categorize young people as either bullies or victims or bully victims or neither, right? So we, it's a kind of a yes-no kind of idea about bullying and victimization. So we have used a rather blunt kind of measure, and I think that what may be happening is, are these issues that you're talking about, severity, frequency, or type of victimization, 
So one of the things, as we kind of talked about these findings with the Rainbow Alley Research Group that I'm working with, is could it be that we see differences if we're looking at name-calling, you know, saying that's so gay or calling people fag or dyke or or some other anti-gay slur, could we find that those rates are not different in schools with with or without GSAs, but the more severe, and I hate even using that term severe to, to think about victimization, but the more physical manifestations of bullying and victimization, we do see differences in, right? So it definitely could be an issue of the type of victimization or the frequency. And so the latest data set that Rainbow Alley just released to us, they did ask many more questions about victimization and type and frequency. And so we're going to start looking at that. So I think that may be a part of the answer, or it may be the answer, I don't know. But the other possibility, which I think is also really intriguing, is thinking about the context of gay-straight alliances. And by that I mean things like the size of the GSA, the visibility of the GSA, how much administrative support it's it's perceived to receive, those types of things. So like with the victimization and bullying variable I just talked about, we've really only measured presence and absence of GSA. It's kind of another yes-no dichotomous, they had one or they didn't have one, right? And so what that essentially does in the statistical models is it treats the highly visible 30-person GSA with tons of administrative support exactly the same as a three-person virtually invisible GSA that exists in a school where the administration is hostile to its existence. And it seems logical that those two different types of GSAs, for example, would have very different impacts on school climate and thus on the various outcomes, whether we're talking about educational or health or mental health outcomes. So it could be that this whole issue of context of what the GSA looks like actually might explain that counterintuitive finding between victimization and feeling safe. I would also think, going back to severity for a moment, that name-calling that is frequent could be severe. Oh, absolutely. And that's why I said I kind of hesitated to even use that notion of, I mean, when we're talking about bullying, who's to say that kind of constant, chronic name-calling is less severe than being punched once, right? So, yeah, so you're right, and I think that that's a kind of a a part of the struggle when we're thinking about bullying and victimization is that whole notion of severity really, I think, gets in the way, or it can get in the way. So, but I think you're absolutely right. I want to jump to ask you about the, the next steps for your research, because I don't want to lose what you were just saying about the context in which gay-straight alliances exist. And are you interested in investigating that in future studies? Yeah. I mean, just like with the victimization question and the types of victimization and frequency that that we were just talking about, we're fortunate that in the most recently released data set from Rainbow Alley, they asked tons of questions about the GSA, what its activities were, how much support it received, was it a hostile environment to it, how big it is. And we're already seeing in some initial analyses that Cynthia Hazel, my colleague in the Mortgage College of Education, that she's doing on student school engagement, that size of GSA is a significant factor. So it's, so we're, all, we're starting to see some initial findings from some of our other work that says, yeah, this whole notion of context of GSAs might have something important to say. 
Right. So, yeah, so both of those arenas, the types of victimizations, frequency, severity, as well as the context of GSAs are two strands that we are starting to take a look at, yeah, for sure. Yeah, because I think there's a real need for studies that look at the behavior of adults within school. Oh, absolutely. So many of our studies have focused on the behavior of young people towards other young people, but it would be interesting to know what youth perceptions are, for example, around are there adults, to what extent are there adults in this school who interrupt harassment? Right. Right. No. You know, just as an example. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Diane, it's like you're on our research team. I mean, this is the discussions <laughs> that were your, or the ideas that you're bringing up. I mean, again, I just feel so fortunate to be working with folks like Corey Barrett, who's the current director of Rainbow Alley, and Carlos Martinez, who's the ED of the GOBT Community Center, because we're able to engage in these conversations, and, and they really think about, so what does that mean in terms of the questions we need to be asking next year? So they're just amazing folks to work with. And what you're bringing up right now is exactly one of those areas that in the current year's planning and and programmatic survey that they're asking about, actually. They're asking about how adults are responding or are they, you know, how frequently. And they're looking at not only how frequently are they responding, but they're looking also at what types of victimization are they responding to. So, for example, they're asking how frequently do adults in the school intervene when the whole you're so gay or that's so gay kind of comments come up, as well as asking, so what about physical bullying? What about name calling? What about property destruction? What about... So they're asking how often are the adults intervening in these various types of victimization? And I would anticipate that what we'll find is that in schools with larger, more visible, more supported GSAs, that we're going to see the adults consistently intervening more than in schools that don't have GSAs or that have smaller and less uh, visible GSAs, as well as intervening across the types of victimization more frequently. Of course, that's a question, right? That's a hypothesis going into this work. And so I can't wait to get this current year's data set to actually start looking at this, because I think you're right. I think there's absolutely something there that is critical in terms of the importance and necessity of adults to take responsibility to be allies to queer youth and step up and say, this is not okay. And I think there's also probably a loop here that that in schools with strong GSAs, the adults are more likely to step up more frequently. And then the more the adults step up more frequently, the more legitimized the GSA is and the stronger and the more visible it gets. So it's a both probably have a relationship, a kind of a causal relationship to one another. Your research has, I think, important implications for school social workers, and also educators and administrators in schools. Could you talk about some of those implications? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I think the bottom line is that we are starting to accrue enough evidence on the potential benefits of gay-straight alliances for LGBTQ youth and young adults, and some evidence of benefit for heterosexually identified youth and young adults as well, that social workers, first, that we have an ethical obligation to be involved in supporting students who are interested in starting a group and educating school administrators on the legal issues surrounding any type of prohibition of or restrictions on GSAs, which we still see happening, and in advocating for school districts to support GSAs financially and with other resources in the same manner that they support other student clubs. So I think that's part of our ethical responsibility as social workers. And then second, I think that as more research comes out that becomes more nuanced about 
GSAs. I think we're going to be able to hone our ability to understand what aspects and what activities of GSAs specifically are associated with what benefits. And so I think that, that we will get to a point where we can actually target how we support different aspects and activities of GSAs to influence very specific outcomes, right? So if certain activities are more associated with educational outcomes or certain activities are more associated with mental health outcomes, that we'll actually, depending on what we're interested, most interested in and impacting hopefully everything, right, but we'll be able to actually target our support and our interventions with GSAs in a more nuanced way. So I think that that's the second thing that I think will be happening. And then finally, I think heterosexually identified social workers should really give some thought to considering that how much more safe it may be for them to step up to be sponsors and supporters of GSAs than for their LGBT-identified social work colleagues or educators, of course, depending on the social and political climate of the school district, right? So I think the other nice benefit of heterosexually identified educators and social workers stepping up is that it models for young people the very philosophy of allyship that GSAs are based on. And so it's a really, I think, a great opportunity to demonstrate that allyship and to that leadership and that taking risk that heterosexually identified folks can do. What opportunities might there be in Colorado for you to conduct research within the schools? Is that a possibility? Well, fortunately, I mean, and I think that varies based on school districts, right? Fortunately, in Denver, with the Denver Public Schools, they have a very strong close working relationship, not only with Rainbow Alley, but also One Colorado is a newer LGBT organization, statewide organization here in Colorado, and they have a GSA network initiative. And so some of the school districts work much closer with One Colorado and with Rainbow Alley than do others. For example, in the Rainbow Alley survey this year, I know that DPS, the Denver Public School System, folks were really interested in making sure that the youth in their schools had access to the survey. And so Corey Barrett, the director, worked really close with them, mostly through GSAs and through kind of GSA-sponsored events to get students from those schools to participate in the Rainbow Alley survey which is really great. And so there's some natural linkages that have kind of fostered participation in some of the research of youth who are not Rainbow Alley specific. They don't receive services or go to Rainbow Alley social events, but they may be involved in gay share alliances in the schools or are friends of people who are. So there have definitely been some moves in that direction. Yeah, so, and now, of course, that's, like I said, really dependent on the school district. We know that there are tons of school districts that are not likely at all to want their students participating in the Rainbow Alley survey, which is unfortunate, we think, but for lots of different reasons, right? So I think we're making some inroads in that arena. Of course, I think the other thing that would be really amazing and wonderful to do is to be able to move from cross-sectional work to longitudinal work. And Rainbow Alley, in their annual survey about three years ago, actually started putting a unique identifier, asking the students to construct, or the participants, respondents, to construct a unique identifier. And so what they're hoping is that they can actually start to see some longitudinal shifts. The problem, I think, that with the way that Rainbow Alley does its survey is that their population is somewhat transient. So you might have 
queer kids who are really involved for a year, maybe two years, and then they go on to do other things, right? And so having kind of a captive audience, if you will, folks who do the survey across three or four or five years is not very likely. So we really haven't had a chance to kind of sit down and look at what across the years, what that looks like in terms of if there's enough, there are enough people who are participating to look at that kind of some of these issues longitudinally, but that would be, you know, ideal. So is there anything that I haven't asked you (laughs) that we should talk about? Or if you would also like to perhaps, if we're getting close to the end, to say more about where you would like your research to go? Right. I mean, we've talked about kind of what I see as the next steps, the victimization, types of victimization, frequency, the context of GSAs, the looking at adult responses to bullying and victimization in the schools. I think those are definitely kind of what I would consider the very next steps over the next two to three years. And then beyond that, I think my approach to doing my research is to really see what emerges before I get too far ahead of myself. And I think that that's, for me, that's really been beneficial because it's created opportunities that if I'd come into this work with Rainbow Alley and the risk and resilience of LGBT youth, I think I would have missed, for example, the whole issue of non-suicidal self-injury, cutting behavior, burning behavior, was not even on my radar. And one of the staff members at Rainbow Alley was kind of, offhand comments that, you know, we're seeing a lot of youth who are engaging in some kind of self-harming behavior without suicidal intent, right? They're, they're cutting or they're, they're burning themselves. And, and Eugene, do you know anything about that? And I'm like, wow, no, I don't. I, it's not an area that I've really kind of given much thought to. And so, of course, I went back and the literature is virtually non-existent on non-suicidal self-injury among queer youth. And Janice Whitlock out of Cornell has done a little bit of work in that area, but her area is more just youth non-suicidal self-injury, not specifically gay and lesbian. And so from that kind of just anecdotal observation from staff who are on the ground working with the youth every day, Corey and Hope added a number of numerous questions about non-suicidal self-injury, and that has spawned this whole other research agenda around trying to understand self-harming behaviors among LGBT youth. So, and that's something I could not have predicted. That's something I did not bring to this work. It's something that just emerged. And so I try to keep myself in check in some way so that I can be responsive to those emerging issues that are coming from folks on the ground who actually, I think, are much better informed probably about the emerging issues than as a researcher than I am. So usually I think of my research agenda only in like the next two or three steps and not much further out because of that. So since you mentioned your work on non-suicidal self-injury, could you briefly perhaps summarize what you found (laughs) in terms of that behavior among queer youth? Yeah, well, I mean, first off, we're finding that its prevalence is about twice what is found among the heterosexual counterparts. So in... I'm trying to think the four or five years of data that we've looked at across the different years, what we see is anywhere from about 30 to about 40% of LGBT youth indicate that they have, and we were looking specifically at cutting behavior, that they have engaged in cutting behavior in the last year. 
And those rates are unbelievable almost. So the first piece that we did was we were just kind of like looking at correlates, like who is doing this? What kind of psychosocial risk are associated with this behavior? And not surprisingly, we found the homeless queer kids were more likely to be engaging in the behavior. Queer kids who are victimized are more likely to be engaged in the game. I mean, so exactly what you would suspect, but before the piece that we did had not been actually documented in the literature. So then the second piece we did, we started looking at what predicts different motivations, right? And we found that the motivations that queer youth are reporting are very similar to the motivations that drive cutting among other populations. So, one of the primary motivations is I'm having intense emotional pain, and by engaging in cutting or burning, it helps me kind of release that. So it's a kind of a catharsis, a physical catharsis of that emotional pain. And then the flip side of it is we're seeing one of the motivations is folks are feeling really shut down and numb, and so by engaging in some kind of self-harming behavior, they start feeling, so they feel alive again. And those are the two primary motivations that we see in the existing literature on non-suicidal self-injury. So that was really kind of where we are with this research now. The most recent data set that Rainbow Alley released has not only about cutting behavior, but it asks about eight or nine different types of self-injurious behavior, ingesting, burning, abrading, I mean, all of these things. And it also asks about onset, recency, frequency, a severity, again, even though that's a problematic characteristic, but it asks a lot more information about non-suicidal self-injury. And fortunately, I have a doctoral student, Sarah Nichols, who this is one of her areas of interest, and so we actually just finished doing a qualitative study where we interviewed, I think we ended up interviewing 45, 46 queer youth who engage in some kind, who have engaged or are currently engaging in some kind of self-injurious behavior. So we're really trying to understand from the youth's perspective, what does this behavior mean to them? How do they understand it? How does it impact their identity? We're also looking at issues of social contagion. We know that from particularly around suicidality, around eating disorders, that there's a social contagion effect. So we're interested in, you know, where did you first hear about self-injury as a coping mechanism. So those are the kinds of things that she is starting to look at, and she's doing a mixed methods dissertation using the Rainbow Alley quantitative data with the qualitative data we just finished collecting to, to really try to grapple with this idea of non-suicidal self-injury and what it means for queer youth. Well, let us know when you all want to do a podcast on that. <laughs> oh, definitely. I think we're probably a couple of years too early for that at this point. But uh, yeah, right. but definitely, I think we'll definitely get there. And I'm just happy that it has, through this work, it has actually surfaced as an issue that exists and that we need to be addressing. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you so much for giving so much of your time this morning. It's been great talking with you about your work. Well, Diane, thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. I always like uh, being able to share kind of what we're finding and in hopes that it catches someone's attention out there who's like never considered working with queer youth and thinking, oh, I, I really should step up. This is some work that's important and that needs to be done. And so, yeah, so always happy to talk about it. Great. Well, I want you to enjoy the snow in Denver. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Sounds good, Diane. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Dr. Eugene Walls discuss his research on school engagement among sexual minority youth. Thanks for listening, 
and join us again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.